This is the Limitless Athlete Podcast. I'm Tom Foxley, founder of MindsetRx and your host, and I believe that athletes must learn how to stimulate their vagal nerve. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm willing to work as hard as I can. There is no past, there's no future, there's just this moment right here. If I did that, if I can get through that, like, come at me. Changing how I saw myself, like, as a man, not just as, as an athlete. It's okay that I struggle. It's okay, that's part of the deal. That's how I responded. Your mind and your body, as we've discussed plenty of times on the Limitless Athlete podcast, are intertwined. You cannot separate one from the other. Your body influences the feel of your mind as much as your mind influences the feel of your body. That's why your head drops and shoulders round when you feel defeated in a workout. It's why you stand up tall when you win. It's why your breath changes with your mood and your heart beats faster at the mere thought of a workout. Your body assumes a posture, both physically and metaphorically, when you give it a repeated stimulus. If you think you're defeated for 20 years, your body, your gut, your brain, your nervous system assumes that to be the truth and acts like it. If you're going through extreme stress, your body recognizes the emotional state you're in and limits access to other states. When your body is fried from overtraining, overcaffeinated, overbreathing, and under-recovering, your thoughts and emotions will run amok. What this gives us is both a problem and an incredible opportunity. How do you break free of the two-way conversation of the mind-body? Isn't it interlocked and reinforcing the story you believe, the emotions you feel, the thoughts you have, and therefore the way your body performs? Well, yeah. But the two-way conversation also gives us two potential openings to change. One, the more traditional in the world of sports, the psychological work. And two, by regulating our nervous system. That is what we dive into in today's show with um, head coach Rachel, and she takes the lead today and she interviews Jessica Maguire, a vagus nerve master and physiotherapist. Expect to learn how your vagus nerve influences your emotions and mood, how to tone your vagal nerve for better performance, the habits that you can integrate into your life for better performance, and so much more. Now, I bring you coach Rachel and Jessica Maguire. Jessica, welcome to the Limitless Athlete Podcast. We are so excited to have you here. Um, as I was saying before, I took Jessica's masterclass on the vagus nerve a few weeks ago at this point and just found it really interesting and helpful for me, both as an athlete and as a mindset coach. So welcome. We're really excited to have you here. Thank you, Rachel. I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Um, you know, really want to start by kind of getting to know you a little bit. So tell us about yourself and how you became interested in teaching uh, people and athletes about vagal tone and the vagal nerve. Sure. Um, so it, I actually started out learning about the vagus nerve. It was actually 20 years ago, which pains me to say thinking <laughs> how, how it was. But um, without knowing it, I was studying the main connections um, so I looked a lot at athletes and doing, looking at their ECGs while they exercised and analysing ECGs. 
um, which is where we hook an athlete up with those little electrodes and look at their oxygen consumption and things like that. Um, Mm. So that was really fascinating. But understanding heart rate variability definitely ties in with a big part of the vagus nerve because we know how it connects to the to the heart and controls the beats of the heart and then a lot of my other study at that stage was on what we call metabolic biochemistry um, which is really all to do with digestion and the gut but also looking a lot at microbiology so Mm. we teach a program that looks specifically at the gut brain axis as well Um, Mm. so I, I was studying it from from back then, but really where my interest came from was after finishing that degree, I completed a, um, back, a master's of physiotherapy, and <clears throat> I worked a lot with people with very chronic conditions like pain that wouldn't get better, and often things would cluster together. So it would be, mm. say, anxiety, pain, gut issues and maybe insomnia mm. it was it was something where I really wanted to get to the root cause of what was going on I mean mm. we hear people say oh, stress is so bad for us um, but I think that doesn't quite give the true indication of what's happening and so I um, I've probably kept studying right through since that with different postgraduate um, trainings, particularly on um, neurology or looking at the different nervous systems. Um, And that sort of led me to put together a little bit like the masterclass you went to um, workshops for my patients to help them really get back in the driver's seat, if you like, of their own nervous Mm. system. Mm. And then that sort of went quite um, we took it around Australia and, and that was really, really popular. So mm. we decided that there are a lot of people that needed that help um, mm. and that's that's what led to us to where we are today. Yeah, uh, thank you. Can you tell us about the vagus nerve? For people out there who've never heard of it, they don't understand what gut-brain access is, can you just mm. give us kind of the rundown of all the important things they need to know? Absolutely. So it's a bit sneaky with the name, the vagus nerve, because we sort of picture one nerve, but it starts at our brainstem. So if we ran our hand down the back of our head, we'd feel there's a bony ridge. And going in from there is our brainstem. And it runs down both sides. And it's more a, it's more a series of connections. Mm. So we have branches that come to the heart, like I mentioned, Um, We have branches that go up to the face, so it's involved Mm. in communication, speech, listening, expression and gestures. Mm. And then we have a very big branch of those um, neurons or nerves that go down into our gut and it touches almost every organ. Mm. So we could, yes, it's huge. We could compare it in size to the spinal cord. Um, and yet it's not as well spoken about as the spinal cord. Now, most of its fibres actually run from the organs up to the brain. So we say Mm. 80% of those fibres are communicating information upwards, and that's sensory information, like what we feel, Mm. and that's where 
I really love this work because we can really make such a big difference difference to how at home somebody feels in their body. And so much of that sense of when we are anxious or we feel the sense of helplessness or shut down, we often leave the body or we cut off from the body and we're off in stories or thoughts or we're off in um, somewhere else, not in our body feeling at home. And so with the vagus nerve, there's physical health improvement when we work on it, but also emotional health and even relational health because of it changes how we talk to each other. Mm. Oh, I'm so interested in asking more about this. So what I'm hearing is uh, the information from the vagus nerve is mostly traveling from the organs up. So from the body up and is giving information to the brain. What happens when the brain receives the information? Yeah, it's a good question. So what you touched on, but what you asked me before, Rachel, I, I didn't actually answer is say looking at the gut brain axis, what that is. That is that connection of the vagus nerve coming into the gut and communicating information up to the brain. So we do see there's various connections. And what we used to just say was that the vagus went from brainstem down to the organ and back up. And this is where it gets really interesting as to what we say is mental health, what we say is physical health, you know, because we like Mm -hmm. to separate these systems but it's really one continual feedback loop. We can't say it stops here, starts here. So some of that information will go to areas like the brainstem or lower centres where we will have changes in things like our respiratory rate, our heart rate, some things we won't even notice. But some of that information goes up to higher centres and communicates Mm. particularly with an area called the insular cortex. And that's involved in how we feel sensations inside our body. So Mm. things like butterflies in our tummy or a racing heart. And interoception is, is the word used for that. And one of the most, it's one of the most fascinating areas of science. Like it's just exploding with research because yeah. a lot of that has been linked to things like eating disorders, gut disorders, mm. chronic pain. Mm. We really see it's a important um, facet of our um, health in, in that physical sense, but also in our level of arousal in our physiology. So some mm. people, research has shown, they tend to, people who are anxious, may tend to fixate on sensations that aren't so that are more negative, we say negative yes. quotation marks, mm. and they will will get stuck on that sensation and sort of can't put their attention on anything else, which mm. then would drive thoughts of something bad's going to happen, going to fail, this is going to go wrong, mm. and then on the other side of that, it's been shown after chronic and traumatic stress that people, some people will have lower activity in the insular cortex and they'll actually ignore sensations. So they'll deny, suppress, cut off because Mm. they feel a bit overwhelming. Mm. And unfortunately, that's not so helpful because it's like, you know, when we get hangry, we ignore being hungry and then all of a sudden we're like, I'm so hungry. It's like I'm almost 
like worked up about it. So a lot of what we're looking at for people is how we can help improve that connection between the brain and the body. Um, Mm. It's an inseparable connection so that it's, yeah, physical health improves, but also I'm going to say the word resilience, which is we don't swing up to the highs of anxiety and down to the lows of shutdown or burnout, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, I'm hearing, um, and this really resonates with mindset RX and our methodology and philosophy, which is that mental health and physical health are not separate from each other. It both on a, um, you know, on a um, perspective level from the individual, your mental health and your physical health are tied in your experiences, but also from what you're saying on a scientific level, they literally cannot be separated from each other. It's one, we're one organism. Absolutely. And it's so being put forward to us, this model that the brain is up here in charge of, you know, commanding over the body. But, you know, we know that the microbiome can cause anxiety and depression if it's not balanced. Mm. You know, we know the beats of the heart will change the activity in the brain. There's a particular um, rhythm to the gut as well. And the movement through that will change the activity in the brain. So interesting. That, yeah. That old paradigm of the brain is up here and in charge and our thoughts are all that matter. It's not really the case. And it's probably yeah. not helpful for people who are really stressed to argue with their thoughts. You know, we can do certain things, but it's, it's, it probably is keeping people stuck in a little bit of anxiety mm-hmm. when they try and just be more positive or reframe it or argue with the, what's hap- happening in, the, in their thoughts. I was talking to an athlete today and shared this experience with her myself earlier this weekend. I was feeling frustrated and then I felt frustrated with myself for being frustrated. So it's <laughs> like that like meta frustration and um, that separation of, um, you know, the brain is in charge. And if you're in control of your own brain, then you're in control of everything creates a lot of shame for athletes too, is that's what you're saying. Like they, they get stuck because they think I can't fix this. Yeah. And it's a second layer, isn't it? Like another layer comes around it of resistance of like, this shouldn't be here. So we really give ourselves a hard time. Mm, we really do. Um, you know, you mentioned um, a little bit about that anxious state and that overwhelmed state. Can you talk us through a little bit about the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system and what those feel like? Yeah, absolutely. So mm. when we look at the different uh, nervous systems, I'll just take a little bit of a step back to give a bit of a framework. If we yeah. were to say, you know, we hear people talk about the nervous system, but we can say there's the central nervous system, the brain and the spinal cord. But what we're talking about is the autonomic nervous system. And it's divided into having two branches, as you've said. So we used to just look at this as sympathetic, parasympathetic, and it was like two branches, very simple. One speeds us up, the sympathetic, one slows us down, the parasympathetic. But over time, what research showed was that some people, when they slow back down from, say, um, let's say they're driving along and a car comes onto their side of the road and there's like that rush of, oh, my goodness, quick take action, which is very, very helpful for us. So we'll feel that sympathetic activation. Now, 
Mm. With something that's acute like that, where it's, you know, quite a scare, we'll be profoundly aware of that activation in our system. So that can feel like mobilising energy of heat or tension through the chest and shoulders. We might feel our heart go fast, but particularly the body will notice it. Like maybe we clench our teeth or grip the steering wheel tight. So that's part of our system to help us take action. And I just want to put in here that stress is nothing more than our mind-body system mobilising energy for us to face whatever it is we need to deal with. And mm. that's very healthy. So stress is actually, it's, it's not bad for us. We just need to recover from it and we just don't want it to be too much. So that response of the sympathetic state releasing this energy, that saves our life. Now, to slow back down, this, come, this is where the vagus nerve comes in. Mm. We can use our vagal break, which is the part of the vagus nerve that really runs to the heart. And so let's say after that, I, I feel myself slow back down after that stressful event and mm. I might loosen my hands on the steering wheel, my shoulders drop, and I feel that deep breath of, whoa, oh, my goodness, maybe there's a passenger next to us who says, oh, are you okay? And we talk it through and then we feel, oh, my gosh, that was so scary, but, you know, we're okay. And it mm. might take 15 minutes for ourselves to ease back down. So coming back to that state of what we call regulation would be mm. um, where we come, come down into an, that other state but for some people, they go into a stress response like that. And when the vagus nerve isn't functioning well, they may end up getting stuck in that sense of anxiety for a long period of time. And then eventually to slow themselves back down, they use a primitive branch of the vagus nerve, which we call the dorsal vagal state they go into. And that's a little bit like putting a handbrake on a car. So we slow down, putting this handbrake on, and we feel ourselves almost collapse. So it's a sense of dropping in energy. It's energy conservation. And for some people, so we can see this sort of two ways. This can happen if we are in prolonged states of anxiety because we have chronic events, like say we're going through a divorce business hardship, um, just unrelenting stress, eventually yeah. we exhaust that system of the sympathetic yeah. where our vitality comes from and so we get burnout. But for some people, if they've been through something that's quite traumatic, then in that time they may have frozen, like can't take action and almost it's like they've left the present moment in a way, like out of body or out of mm. you know present moment, and mm. so if they learnt from what we call an area in the brain called the survival brain, that that's how they need to cope, or that's how they need to respond to cope with stresses, they might keep responding to stress with like a freeze response. So this mm. is, oh my gosh, I can't, 
I can't do anything. So some people, it's being coined learned helplessness, but I think that's okay. probably puts a little bit of blame on people and I don't love that term, but it's almost mm-hmm. that the nervous system learns to undercope with stresses and mm-hmm. so it keeps going into this state of shutdown, withdrawal and freeze. So that gives us three states. We have the sympathetic and then we've got a state where we'll call it our ventral vagal branches working, so where we're regulated, and then we have Mm. that shutdown dorsal vagal state. So the old system of sympathetic, parasympathetic, was just a little bit too simple because it didn't equate for that that other state where some people shut down. Yeah, Mm, that's so, so helpful. And I have seen this listed as fight or flight, and freeze. Do you find that that still applies largely when people experience those states? Yeah, it can be a useful way to um, look at it. I would just say with freeze, some people will freeze, but some people will completely collapse as in feel Mm. this is hopeless. So let's say it's an athlete and they're playing, Mm. I'm going to just say a game of tennis and it's a really, it's a really important last you know, getting close to the end of the game, pressure is on and their brain or their their level of anxiety has been creeping up, creeping up, creeping up because if they lose this, they know that let's say they're out of that championship. So the pressure keeps escalating, escalating, escalating. Now they could freeze, which is like that, I can't take action, I can't do anything, something really bad is going to happen. So it's more like a unable to respond but see a lot Mm. of people with freeze will say they still feel a lot of anxious or anxiety but they they can't take action as where the other response which is more of like a collapse or shutdown would be the athlete would drop their head and be like there's no use trying I give Ah. up so can you Mm. see there's a bit of a difference energetically like there's a bit of a yes um like this energy conservation the collapse the heart will slow right down Mm. they'll actually feel like like almost exhausted as where the freeze state will still have a lot of high energy but clenching yeah yes Mm. so they're a little Mm. bit different but it's still Mm. helpful to frame it that way as well That's so helpful because we work with many athletes who do experience exactly that. They, they reach a point where they have hit, you know, the pressure is on. We work with a lot of high level competitors, the pressure's on and they, uh, and I can watch it happen with some of them. They go like this, their posture changes. They start, I can see that they're breathing a little bit differently. And I know at that point in their head, it's all, um, I can't do this. My shot, I blew it already. It's over. Exactly. That's it. So the posture mm. we will see of someone who's in that shutdown or going into that state, I'm going to say it's like a, a, the helplessness. The, yes. the spine will collapse. Like, you know, you yeah. sort of see this, oh, can't do it. And yeah. that's where you, and the breathing slows right down. So, so for them, you know, you're going to try and lift them up a little bit as where someone who's in freeze, you might try more to connect with them or bring them back into the present moment of like, Mm. you know, can we connect with what's happening here? 
And that's Ooh. a lot of that's a lot of what it is because these survival responses take people away from the present moment. You know, they're almost off into a story of, but if I fail, then that, then that, then that. And really, we need to look at we need to look at what's happened before that because the the part of our nervous system that's detecting if things are safe, dangerous, or life threatening. It happens outside of conscious awareness, but it's never the same. So it's we're always changing with how we detect what's happening in our environment, if it's safe or not. And so let's say somebody had a really bad game and they just it was horrible for them. They felt totally helpless and stuck and they just, you know, couldn't get it right and it was shot after shot was just terrible the next game they go into, it's almost like they might respond with, the survival brain might respond with, oh, I'm hopeless, I remember this. Oh, this is hopeless. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's like showing or teaching or embodying a different experience before mm. we get to that. So there's a bit of a pattern that, you know, people might see or recognise that for themselves that under pressure they keep doing a similar response and mm. that's where the survival brain has learned. Mm. How would you advise? So it sounds like presence is a really important piece of this is coming back to the present versus assuming that we know the future based on the past. Yes. Uh, what's What are the methods that you found effective for athletes to bring them into the present moment and find ways to not keep writing that story over and over again? Yeah, it's interesting. I think I would say that the biggest the biggest thing is a sense of connection with somebody else. So mm. whether that's a coach, a partner, somebody else who's there that almost can be like, hey, you know, I'm right here with you. You're safe. It's going to be okay. And I remember when Kelly Slater won Pipe, whether that was a few months ago, and yeah. he said that the morning of pipe. Now, physiologically, he is competing against guys half his age. So yeah. I mean, you know, he's 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 obviously knows the wave, but it's still, you know, there's there's guys a lot younger than him. And he said that the morning of pipe, his mm. partner connected with him and and basically sat and said, you know, all you need to do is just come back to the breath, come back to the present mm. moment. And she was with him in a very caring way. Yeah. And for, for resilience, we talk a lot about don't be codependent, but co-regulation is a superpower. So yes. if we're around somebody else who's grounded, who's not, not necessarily calm, but he's like with us and our nervous mm. system attunes to that, we will mirror that experience. So he even took it into the competition from that morning. And he spoke a lot about that, although his mind started to wander off into, you know, even when athletes start picturing themselves winning, I think it's coming back into the body. So mm. it's it's sometimes challenging to go, we don't want to say stop thinking about that because, again, that's resistance. It doesn't work. Yeah. No, in the in the present moment, we can connect to the environment in ways where it might be. Okay. I can feel my feet on the floor. 
I recognize that I'm right here. And then tuning into the body. So let's say for that person who is collapsed and feels helpless, Mm. that might Mm. be where they learn to go, all right, I need to grow tall through my spine. Mm. I need to open up through my chest. Just notice how that changes my system. Mm. Okay, I feel myself come up a bit. And it's really small shifts that happen over time. Um, We... We want to look at as well, but, you know, that's in the short term, like, and, yeah. and peak, peak performance comes when we can match whatever's in front of us with the right amount of arousal. So that's yes. very valid. But then we've got to look at as well, okay, well, what, how can we train our system so that away from actual competition, our survival brain doesn't respond in this automatic way. And so... Mm. There's a few key pillars to what we call skillful regulation. And we need to look at the fact that whatever it is that we do, like some people say to me, well, if I massage my ear, am I like stimulating the vagus nerve? And the things we want to look at is from whatever you practice, do you notice that there's a strong kinesthetic change in that stress response? So, for instance, you will feel that, oh, okay, that's, there goes that, that holding on. People will often yawn, like I said, <sighs> discharging that stress. Some people might feel a twitch in their body, a gurgling in their stomach. It's almost mm. like the energy moves from being to <sighs> again. Yeah. So mm. that's what we need to experience and also just like training, we need to load the nervous system. So out of competition, what can be really helpful is rather than, um, you know, doing something that's easy and not really stressful. I mean, you wouldn't train your body to lift really light weights. Well, you wouldn't train your nervous system not to have some stress. So we want to have it where we hit this sweet spot where we actually would load the nervous system with some stress and then teach it to cope and do it again and do it again and do it again. So the key to this is bioplasticity where we used to call it neuroplasticity, but it's not really accurate anymore because we know there's changes in the immune system, changes in the hormonal system, changes in the whole person. You know, it's not just the nerve cells that change. So for what we would look at is six weeks. If somebody's had, they continue to respond in this way where they get stuck, their performances, you know, you'd want the stuff that's done out of training, uh, sorry, out of competition and the things that you can do in competition. Both are important, but if you truly want to change the nervous system, there's got to be a bioplasticity reset, particularly in your past if there's like stress that stresses that haven't been recovered from. And that's, mm. I think, I can't think of anybody who doesn't have some situations like that. <laughs> Thank you for saying that, Jessica. We all carry trauma with us, whether we are ready to admit it or not. It's very, very true. Yes. Uh, this is so, so interesting. I want to go back to what you were talking about with um, co-regulation, sure. uh, because many of our athletes will have coaches with them at those high-level performance pieces. What should coaches know about helping their athletes regulate without letting their athletes learn to 
over rely on them because their coach can't be there all the time supporting them and providing that co-regulation. What's the, what's the balance that they're looking for so that they're teaching their athletes to soothe themselves, not doing all of the soothing for them? Yes, this is a great question. I would, first of all, working with anybody, look at what is their typical pattern or how do they respond? So if we look at this as like, a window of neurobiological limits, which is a really fancy way of basically saying we've got this zone where we perform well. If we push Mm. above it, you know, we might, if we override it, we're going to go up into anxiety. If we, if we undercope, we might not not get in there. So Mm. for the type A personalities who are a bit driven, well, and that's a lot of athletes, but let's say it's a lot of athletes. Yeah. (laughs) But we'll say most athletes are probably that way. We tend to go over our limits. So we will say, I've just got to push more. I can do this more. Um, So, for instance, um, okay, this is an example. So I had in my 20s a physiotherapy clinic, um, which was great, such an amazing um, time in my life. But the expectation I had on myself was to treat a full caseload of patients all day manage a team of staff and run a business so (laughs) so it was constantly overriding these the limits of what I could cope with for a day so in the end I would end up getting to this stage of like and feeling anxious overwhelmed and eventually I think I had two bouts of burnout ended up with some heart palpitation and heart condition stuff and chronic gut issues Mm. so I had Mm. to learn when it was okay to say I'm overriding my limits and I need to stop so for a coach you need to see okay is that your person or and there's a lot of like fear-based you know beliefs and drive under that it could also be shame as well so they might Mm be I need to achieve or do more to be enough yeah so so really looking at is this person internalizing when things go bad oh it's my fault I need to do more I need to be stronger I need to push I need to grind I need to hustle when really for a lot of people who tend to go into that state they would be better to do less they would almost be better to go just go back to the basics so a coach might just simplify and say right that doesn't matter that doesn't matter that doesn't matter this is all we come back to again and again and again and again Mm. without all of that chaos and noise and, you know, anxiety. Now, the other people, and this is more what I would say I saw with patients with chronic pain, but I'm sure there are some athletes too, they never push up to what they could actually do. So there might be something, say, for an athlete who, they need to, I'm just going to say, a surfer to learn a particular technique, but there's some risk in it because, you know, they could hurt themselves. Mm-hmm. So they might just avoid ever wanting to do that. And, mm-hmm. and then they never really get an opportunity to see what their potential is. So that's mm-hmm. more a fear avoidance. And so yeah. with those people, now, whenever you bring something novel or new to the nervous system, it will be seen almost as a threat. Yeah. So we need to do things like low 
stress arousal with new things. So as a coach, that's where you might look at, okay, I need to slowly introduce things with this person, not go, let's go, as where the other person will be like, I'm going to do it, let's go, I can do it. But then if they if it's not perfect, they might collapse. So uh-huh. it's really yes. getting to know. It's really getting to know the inner um, workings, but also what we might say our stress reaction coping habits are. So, mm. you know, I, I mean I can see myself in both situations in times Same. in the past. And yeah. for, for an athlete, they might be like, okay, I I'm gonna, you know boom and bust and push my way through and no pain, no gain. Yeah. And then they probably could end up injured. Um, yes. But then in other areas of their life, you know, maybe they're too scared to date. Maybe they're too scared to go and try something career-wise. So yeah. it's, I think, looking at a whole person as well, mm. not just mm. um, in one particular facet. Hey, if you're enjoying this episode, chances are you'll enjoy our free ebook, How to Stop Substandard Self-Critical Plateaus and Unleash Your Potential. It's a step-by-step guide to finding your mojo again and getting back to the athlete you know you can be. It's free, you just have to stick your email address in and download it. To find it, head to mindsetrx.com slash ebook. That's mindsetrxd.com slash ebook. Now let's get on with the show. Oh, we so 100% agree. We don't magically step into the gym and suddenly we're only a physical body and only an athlete. We're bringing our relationships and our jobs and our kids and all of those, all of those pieces of ourselves with us. Um, you know, you mentioned the, um, the collapsate being less uh, common for athletes. And I believe that you're right. The one place that I see that happen a lot where athletes need what we would describe as almost a progressive exposure therapy to things is when they're injured because they have that fear of re-injury. And so um, I think what you're describing is looking at their program and saying, okay, we're not going to go all the way back yet. If you're feeling that fear, you're not ready will slow it down a little bit so that you can progressively expose yourself to what feels threatening. Yes. And just continuing to load and load and load until it's, you know, as close back to competition. So uh, hamstring injuries, so many retear. It's, it was, the studies on it were quite concerning. And I remember teaching out, yeah, like working with athletes who had the tears and they found that there was a little bit of a gap because physios were working with them to be like, okay, you're ready, but it was more rehab rehab exercises but without yeah. loading enough. So mm. this is the same with, you know, I, I suppose I am looking at the nervous system through the lens of what I saw with a lot of chronic pain people was yeah. we, we need to elicit um stress we need to push ourselves like i i think being uncomfortable is something that we can learn to get better at particularly mm-hmm. if we want to have growth i mean if we want to stay the same or decline that's fine we can be comfortable <laughs> but, we can but, but i think it won't like, last forever though will it <laughs> life will get in your way 
<laughs> and, and, you know, there, there can be so much reward for when we do get that growth. You know, I love nothing more than increasing the weights that I lift in the gym. It just is so satisfying. Um, but it hurts. It's uncomfortable. I push myself <laughs> and, you know, it's ongoing. So I think that when we look at um, the ways that it's uncomfortable in the short term, you know, what that brings us. But but to know that it's not just the physical system we need to train, it's also how we are showing up in competition, you know, how we're showing up in training and um, this is where a coach is just priceless because, mm. to be honest, I can't objectively set my own trainings because I will always, it will never feel like enough. You know, they'll always yeah. be like, I should have done more. I should have had this. I should have had that. Mm. Or, or it might be on those days where I'm not feeling so motivated where I can quite easily talk myself into, oh, no, no, that's enough. <laughs> so, so I have a coach from my gym plan and I think it's just so smart to have that set because you can't be objective with yourself. And we want to take the, the human, um, how do I put it, the, 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 well, okay, those limits I was talking about, you know, the yeah. neurobiological limits, if we say it's like a window, yeah, that changes all the time. So, yes. you know, on a certain day I could, or a certain week, I could have, you know, things that are hard at work. Well, my, my limits might be smaller. Mm. And so if I then am training myself, that's where I could easily say, oh, I don't need to do that today. So mm. yeah, it's a, it's an interesting um, one to look at. I'm sure you see a lot of this with setting programs and things. Oh, 100%. Well, and you're mentioning outside stressors impacting what happens in the gym and in competition. It's another reason why it's so important for us to be coaching a full person versus just their athletic endeavors, because we need to know, yeah, when, when stress is really high, then things have to be adjusted for inside the gym. Um, what, what do you find are the most common reasons that athletes find themselves in either that um, sympathetic state or that parasympathetic dorsal state? What are the reasons that they get there? We talked a little bit about it. Okay. So either way, whether we are seeing, I'll say like a chronic ongoing anxiety and we want to look at this as like being stuck in that feeling of stuck in anxiety or a stuck down in either burnout, depression, flatness or shutdown. Mm. It will happen either way that the first thing that happens is the vagal break or the vagus nerve isn't working as well. So okay. if you were to imagine that you're riding, you would have heard this in the masterclass, but riding did, a bicycle yeah. downhill, you're just going to keep that little bit of the brake on. And that's what our vagus nerve is always doing to our heart rate. So if it was off, we would our heart would beat around 90 beats per minute. But yeah. it's actually an evolutionary thing where the development of the vagal brake was what enabled humans to work together cooperative, cooperatively. And hmm. this is where humans thrived. So the, the vagal break always being on, but when we have chronic and traumatic stress, so 
in 2020, I would see a lot of people come in because in Australia we had the bushfires first, then COVID hit, then there was the second wave of, you know. And so people just weren't getting to recover from these huge events. And so they would report like feeling like always on, anxious, and they had what we would say low vagal tone because that break was off. Now, it's normal for us to take or relax the break a little bit. That's totally what happens in competition where we feel that mobilising energy ready but we're not going into fight or flight. So we have Mm. still that, you know, sense of activation. But say for an athlete who had low vagal tone, they might find that when they go to competition and, yes, they feel nervous or they feel that, mobilizing energy but they might go up into anxiety panic anger reactivity and they just away beyond what is good for competition performing yeah exactly so that's where our vagal break keeps that sympathetic energy in check and it's we want that sympathetic energy enough for us to do our best but we also don't want it to be coming out so much that we're, you know, anxious. Um, and then where somebody would go down into that flat stage, that could be where the sympathetic system is exhausted because we have a loss of vagal break. Okay. And then so there's always sympathetic energy being released. Once that is exhausted, we can... So let's say, you know, you've had a conflict with somebody really close to you and it was Mm. highly highly stressful and then you go home and you go to bed for like two days and feel like oh my gosh I just feel crazy or for some people working on a big project or to meet a deadline and then they collapse for a couple of days so it's that kind of boom and bust um yeah but also as I mentioned the the thing will be is if somebody has had periods in their life where they were facing high levels of stress and felt helpless they may automatically respond it's like a model is formed or a map is formed from our past and the map we use to navigate our life today can still be coming from the past and so we Mm. project these past experiences onto the present so for a lot of people who've had Repeated stress where they couldn't do anything, like they felt powerless, Mm. um, then that's really where we'll see they might respond to stress in this, like it's a learnt response, it's conditioned. And so a big part of moving through that is unlearning. But for those people, a lot of it will be improving the vagal break and increasing sympathetic energy. Um, I would say I see this as well a lot with people who, suppress sense that like suppress anger Mm. suppress like it's like I shouldn't feel this way get down and they use sort of like a shame-based approach to squash what is really inside them Mm. if that makes sense so we we hear we hear so much of this message of anger's bad we shouldn't be angry well anger Mm. is really bloody powerful you know like if, if someone oversteps a boundary and I feel anger and I use that to say this is not okay, this needs to change, yeah. you know, that is really powerful. So mm. we, that's part of our biology and if we squash it, 
that's where we can get stuck down in these states. Mm, I so appreciate hearing that from you because there is this sort of uh, shame around feeling strong emotion, uh, this sort of romanticizing of being stoic and basically like never feeling anything, which is unreasonable because we're emotional creatures and it's a rich part of our life. And um, yeah, feelings are teachers. Uh, I teach athletes often that anger, exactly as you said, is often a signal of a boundary violation. Uh, resentment means that you're feeling envious of someone else having their needs met while you're not meeting your needs. Like there's so much to learn from the feelings that we have. And um, we tried emotional suppression back through the like 60s, 70s and 80s and found it created a lot of mental health issues. So it's really good to try something new now. <laughs> Absolutely. We're in a new time. I think the key that is helpful, you know, I spoke about that word interoception before. Yes. And, and that's where we say we, we get models of interoception based on what we experienced in terms mm. like of strong sensations. And then mm. we might um, continue to respond with the same old story. And this is where we need to bring those sensations into our awareness slow them down and then they can be almost updated so it's like hang on that was that model from back then but that's not what's happening now but what's happening is a lot of people it's 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 a real challenge to see that to work with that and even to recognize the states of our nervous system you know like I've mentioned it like we can know it but we need to be able to read that from an interoception point of view and that Mm. isn't as easy you know it's not like going oh this is this information it's actually saying oh there's that sensation oh what does this remind me of in my past oh it's Mm. just like that time when blah 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 so tracing Mm. things back can be really helpful and especially Mm. if we can then sit with what's there and allow that stress cycle to complete from before we actually then can come to today with a Mm. with a fresh new curiosity rather than it's always going to be like this Mm. yeah creating more hopefulness and a sense of empowerment absolutely yeah Mm. oh that's so beautiful um you mentioned bioplasticity and building that. And, uh, you know, we, we talked a little before about improving vagal tone over the long-term and the short-term. So I just kind of synthesizing what you're talking about so far, it sounds like learning to sit with and feel our feelings, building that interoception is a really critical component of this rather than intellectualizing our feelings and trying to reframe, um, think positive, all those things that, again, we tried before and um, they just don't work. What else would you say is something that we want athletes to take away from? How do I improve my vagal tone, um, improve my window of tolerance over the long term? Mm, Yes. So we spoke a little bit about this before we said, where we want athletes to feel like they can be or where we want them to be comfortable is where there is a little bit of that vagal break coming off and that sympathetic energy is coming in. So they can learn to be in that highly charged state but still feel safe. 
And yeah. this is this is where play can be so useful. So yeah. play is a, is like a zone. It's a blended state of mm. the vagal break with that sympathetic energy. So if we put those mm. together, so we want to create a bigger capacity to be in that state and experience more. Um, when we look at play, what's useful is that there's a reciprocity back and forth with somebody. So okay, we want it to be with someone where we feel that sense of, oh, this is like feeling so um, uh, exciting, you know, so yeah. there's that energy coming up um, and there's like a back and forth and part of it's spontaneous and it mm. might be fast and learning that, um, you know, we can be in that space without there having to be a sense of anxiety or dread. Um, and for some people, even without having to shut down. And yeah. so a lot of people say, well, where do I start? And, you know, you could look at, okay, comedy nights. You could look at even using something silly like taking photos. It could be Twister. It could be mm -hmm. definitely playing a game back and forth, a board mm -hmm. game. But it's very much about what is attunes to your nervous system so mm. when we teach people about their nervous system you know it, there's so much variation that we can't say oh this is the one best thing for anything because mm, of course um, it's different for everybody so I just invite athletes to really explore that sense of like who feels playful you know I've got friends that we can actually be so silly and giggle and just um it's it's total freedom of, of, of being yourself mm. plus that spontaneity. So if there's people like that and then also just how that feels to you, but that can just feel like, you know, a real sense of being with other people who who you who see you, attune to you, um, and there's that sense of safety is, is such a resilience superpower. Mm, you know, this is um, another time in our conversation that connection has come up. And I remember you mentioning that parts of the um, vagal nerve uh, connections connect to the face. Can we talk a little bit about the importance of connecting? And I want to be specific, connecting authentically uh, with other people um, and how that improves athletic performance. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So we'll see this through what we call our social engagement system. Okay. And when our social engagement system becomes active, our vagal break will come back in. So mm -hmm. what we're looking at is when we are around, when we get around somebody who's in their social engagement system, if we've been really anxious, we'll hear the voice of a person who's in their social engagement system with lots of variation in pitch and rhythm. So mm. it's not necessarily talking in a calm, whispery voice that tells us that I'm so ridiculous. <laughs> it's actually that there, <laughs> I know, I can't help myself. Um, it's actually that there's like this change up and down and, mm. and um, changes in rhythm. So you know, when we hear parents talk to a baby, we'll hear something mm. like this and that is naturally co-regulating or we hear people do it with their pets. Like, oh, you're such a good boy. And then it's back down again. So that mm. is all prosody and we're doing it 
intuitively. Yeah. If someone was sort of anxious, we might hear a monotone voice down here and that would be a clue of that fight or flight um, because the muscles, sorry, the, the, the way the vagus connects with our muscles of speech and communication will mean that when it's active, there is that prosody. But once we move up into a stress state, the voice will become monotone because we lose that activation of the vagus. Mm. But also you'll often hear in people talking who are highly anxious, like more in that flight energy. It'll sound something more like this, where there's the breath every few words and it's very still, it is still technically monotone, but it's at a higher pitch. High, yeah. Yep. And Mm. then someone who's in a freeze or collapse state, they probably won't talk much. So they won't be communicating as much. Um, we can see on the face of somebody who has access to their social engagement system, the smile comes up into their eyes. So it's those lines around the outside of the eyes creasing that indicate that the vagus is connecting to a cranial nerve that comes into the muscles around the eyes called orbicularis ocular. So somebody yeah. smiling there, it means that there's an engagement of the vagus nerve. Mm. Um, and and that even seeing that from somebody else who smiles at us with their eyes, it will start to bring messages, so, you know, under the level of conscious awareness of I'm safe, this person's safe, it's okay. Yeah. Um, and then finally we'll hear it, well, finally it's listening. So when we're in, when the social engagement system is active, if you and I were talking and we're at a party, but let's say we were really connecting, like let's say we both said, oh, we work with people to help them function better, you know, whether it's athletes and we were like, wow, I do that too. So even in that crowded room, the muscles of my middle ear would engage in a way that I could hear the sound of the human voice. Mm. So I'm going to really be able to just hone in on listening to you. But mm-hmm. if I was in my sympathetic state or that fight or flight, that would change. And I actually mm-hmm. would struggle to hear you because from a physiological point of view, I would be hearing low frequency sounds, which are predator sounds from a survival point of view. So mm-hmm. this is something for coaches to keep in mind. If you're really going to talk with an athlete when they're that wound up is that useful you know is it more that you're just there with them and you might even touch or you might get them up in standing and moving or you might um, in another way connect to them and then talk to them because they can't even hear you at that moment probably not but yeah. if you're there with them and you're in that state where you're regulated I mean you can still mm. feel nervous or you could still feel up and down and, and that's probably another bit of a thing that I grouch about a little bit is when we say regulated, we're not trying to create robots who are calm. You know, yes. these waves of sensations coming and going is completely normal. Mm. But if, if we're a coach, we can really be that co-regulator for another person just by changing our state and gestures are another thing, like the way we move our head. So if we see somebody who's 
up tight, shoulders up, like this, eventually you're going to start to think what's wrong, something's wrong. Yeah. And we have what's known as posture resonance circuits in our brain where, Mm. for instance, if say say you were at the movies and there was a loud noise and you notice people around you started looking and they looked worried and it was all tension, you would start to feel anxious just from seeing their posture change. Um, You know, if we see it in nature, it's what animals do as a herd. You know, someone does. And then they're all to attention. So we're the mm-hmm. same. And this is where that social engagement system will really help anyone come back to that, mm. that state where they're regulated. Mm. Uh, it sounds like the community that you're part of is really important in this too. Everybody kind of working together to be regulated rather than what we see in a lot of um, gyms where there can be cultures of uh, staying in a super high regulated state all the time. Absolutely. Like it, everybody, everybody needs to be on board with this, uh, this co-regulation thing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I think that, gyms in that way help so much because it's not just the the co-regulation and chatting with people but just to solidify those habits of good training with other people is is phenomenal Mm. because that we tend to um you know to belong to a group where we'll tend to perhaps not always do things that are serving us so well so yeah that's that's a more powerful driver and, and this mm. is where belonging to a, a group where these things are really valued is so helpful. Oh, yeah. Oh, I totally agree with you. Jessica, where can people find you, find out more about what you do and continue learning from you? Uh, so the best place is my website, jessicamaguire.com. Um, I do put quite a bit on Instagram because I, I do love writing about this topic. Um, and my handle is if you if you just looked up my name, Jessica Maguire, the handle is repairing the nervous system. Um, mm. So they're probably the best two places. Wonderful. Um, it has been such a pleasure getting to chat with you. I feel like we could talk for another two hours about this stuff and <laughs> wouldn't run out. Um, I so appreciate you joining us. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Rachel. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening to the Limitless Athlete Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And whilst you're at it, please leave a lovely review for us. Or follow us on Instagram, which is at MindsetRx, so MindsetRxD. And you can keep up to date with a lot of interesting stuff coming your way, including a really cool workshop, a three-day workshop that we're going to be working with you on how to go all in on your mindset and therefore all in on your physical potential. Anyway, stay tuned on iTunes, no, stay tuned on Instagram uh, to find out all about that. And I'll speak to you soon for the next episode.